This is Macro Horizons, Episode 40, Midcast Crisis, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 15th. And as we reflect on Macro Horizons turning 40, we're reminded that 2020 will usher in the first 40-year-old millennials. Avocado-colored convertible, anyone? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, time to buy the dip? It's pretty close, but I don't think we're quite in dip buying mode just yet. The price action over the course of the last week was surprising, at least insofar as the context of the macroeconomic data. Most notably was the disappointment in core CPI. It came in below expectations, but nonetheless, the latter part of the week was characterized by a relatively significant repricing higher in rates. Now, part of that is obviously going to be a function of progress on the trade war front, as well as some hints that Brexit on October 31st will not be quite as dire as the market had been anticipating. Taking a step back, this is very consistent with the idea that the pendulum of economic sentiment can swing relatively sharply between growing concern and moderating worries. Still, it's difficult to say that there's a great deal of economic optimism priced into the Treasury market with 10-year yields still solidly below 2%. The revelations from the FOMC minutes were relatively limited, frankly. The FOMC minutes revealed little in terms of new information. Specifically, for those of us hoping for any details on the standing repo facility, we were left wanting, as it were. We did hear from Powell and Kaplan on the prospects for the Fed expanding the balance sheet. Bills are clearly going to be a focus, although it's unclear whether or not they're going to be the entire first round of purchases or simply weighted a bit more heavily. If we look back historically, prior to the crisis, the composition of SOMA shows that there was actually a fair amount of bill holdings by the Fed before we found ourselves in a QE environment, which was also characterized by Operation Twist. So this is very consistent with a rebuilding of that cushion of bills within SOMA's holdings. Our primary takeaway from this week's series of Treasury auctions is that we do continue to see small intraday concessions for each respective takedown. However, the glut of Treasury supply has not proven to be trend-setting, nor has it really added to our forecast to the outright level of rates as we contemplate the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. This is exemplified by the lowest-yielding 30-year auction being taken down at the 1 p.m. WI rate. 
within the disappointing core CPI numbers, we were not surprised to see the pullback in used auto prices was the key driver. And while there has been a fair amount of volatility within the apparel series, we don't expect that there will be a resumption of the three-tenths of a percent month-over-month trend. However, drifting below one-tenth of a percent, as we saw for the September data, seems a bit of a stretch at this point. So Ian, you've safely made it back from a trip overseas seeing clients, and I couldn't help but notice my duty-free treasures must have been left behind. Really? What about the king-sized Toblerone I left you? John? What? They weren't both for me? Anyway. So what's the rest of the world worried about? Well, it seems that the rest of the world is worried about the same primary things that we've been concerned about here domestically. However, one of the questions that came up quite often, and frankly a bit more often than I had anticipated, was the drama that's playing out in Washington, the impeachment risk, and what that ultimately means for the state of play in terms of the global trade war. On some level, the expectations seem to be that there's a reasonably good chance that impeachment proceedings go forward, although very, very little possibility that Trump is actually removed, regardless of how they play out. One key takeaway was that this complicates the situation for any potential fiscal endeavors, i.e. a middle-class tax reform before the election or anything more durable on the infrastructure front. Nonetheless, given the drama that's playing out between Beijing and Washington, the notion that China might simply try to wait out the current administration continues to resonate. Another big takeaway was the idea that the Fed has been backed into a bigger rate-cutting campaign than simply the fine-tuning narrative that they've been putting forward. So on one level, that certainly justifies 10-year yields at 150. But on the flip side, it does leave us wondering exactly why the front end of the curve has remained relatively resilient, all things considered. So we've been on a while about the flatter curve signaling a policy error, a re-steepening of the curve being predicated on the notion that the Fed will have to more quickly respond to the deteriorating domestic fundamentals. And circling back to something you highlighted, a question that I've gotten this past week has been, is the Fed going to be able to avoid returning to the effective lower bound without triggering a risk asset sell-off? Because they are, in a way, getting backed into a corner, and the question will become whether or not Powell will be able to walk back the market's expectations of more easing without triggering something akin to what we saw in Q4 of last year. It's also notable that if we consider the way that the Fed has been actively managing to forward financial condition expectations, the idea that Powell is attempting to avoid the type of correction in asset prices that we saw in Q4 2018 certainly resonates. My biggest concern is at this point, stocks are roughly 5% off of the recent highs and below the levels that we brought into early October 2018. Since then, the Fed has ended their rate hiking campaign, spent a period on hold, ended the balance sheet runoff, completely reversed course, 
cut 50 basis points and has now committed to expanding the balance sheet once again. Oh, that's QE. No, that's not QE. Bad Ben. So this brings up the obvious question. If the Fed is so concerned with avoiding a spike in equity volatility that would tighten financial conditions, aren't they going to have to keep cutting rates and truly institutionalize the Powell put? I mean, one way to think of what they've done is Powell said they want to prolong and extend the current expansion. Well, if you just look at the equity market, we're kind of flat over the past 12, 18 months with some rounding error. But it took all the steps you pointed out to, Ian, just to keep us flat. Another way of saying this is if the Fed is serious about extending the cycle, about trying to prolong this expansion period as long as possible, perhaps they might cut down to zero. The more concerning thing at that point becomes, however, if you have rates all the way back at zero and the economy can't stand on its two legs to get equities at a higher level, I think it's fair to start talking about some of the secular stagnation concerns once again, especially in, you know, we've talked a lot about break-evens, a lot about inflation compensation, and it's not even that inflation compensation has been held steady over the past two months. It's been cratering. It's at the lowest level in, what, three plus years. That's a great point. And it plays into the idea that given the outright level of inflation compensation, the persistent flatness of the yield curve takes on a different character. Now, we've certainly been on about timing the cyclical re-steepening of the curve. Two's Tins recently made a push just north of 15 basis points, obviously a bit encouraging to our underlying thesis that the curve should steepen more dramatically. However, since that point, we've seen a bit of a retracement. And this leaves us to ponder if we will actually see a very traditional re-steepening of the curve in this particular rate cycle. And there are two incredibly important things at play here. The reason why the curve cyclically re-steepens as the Fed goes into a cut cycle is expectations they'll cut and then raise rates again at some point in the future. That's no longer obvious. If you are concerned about Japanification, secular stagnation, new normal, whatever you want to call it, it's not obvious that once the Fed lowers rates back towards zero, they're going to be raised again outside of some forecast window. So in that world, as the front end comes down, well, the long end gets dragged down with it, just an expectation that rates are going to have to stay that much lower for that much longer. In essence, the idea that they're going to cut and then hike again is legitimately under debate. The other thing that's happening during all of this is, where's the inflationary impulse? In order to get that cyclical re-steepening in twos tens, you're going to need to see inflation pushed back into the curve. We have unemployment at a 50-year low. We have core CPI year over year north of 2%. And we have five-year break-evens at you know, 1.2, 1.3. That is extremely low. And without that inflationary pressure further out in the curve, it's going to be harder to steepen. This is where the argument gets a little bit problematic in my mind, at least. And that is okay, I'm on the same page. The Fed is ultimately going to need to approach the effective lower bound policy at some point. This cycle that follows intuitively, the inflationary impulse might not be as obvious as we would like to see. However, I struggle to imagine a world in which two-year yields have a repeat of what we saw during the crisis. They push down rather dramatically, call it below 50 basis points, very consistent with the effective lower bound for monetary policy over the next 24 months. 
are we really going to see 10-year yields at 50 basis points? That's a more compelling argument, except for the foreign experience. Look at the JGB market. Look at the Bund market. And even in Powell's speech this week, in one of the questions, they asked, what other things might you consider? He explicitly called out yield curve control in the treasury market. So the idea that this time is different is absolutely true. This time is different. This is the first cut cycle where we're going into expectations of forward guidance, a QE program, and likely more. You know, I agree with you. If you had asked me 10 years ago, would it be possible for 10s to consistently trade under 2%, under 1%? I'd have said that's crazy. But one of the things we've learned in the past decade is that maybe it's not. It is worth emphasizing that there are some key differences between Japan, Europe, and the U.S. Now, all of these developed economies are dealing with a very, very similar demographic issue. So there's one of the consistencies. The immigration policies in Japan are strikingly different and more insular than in Europe and the U.S., even despite some of the recent policy changes. Moreover, if we do look at the European government bond market, it's far more fragmented. Sure, German yields are negative across the curve and rather dramatically in certain sectors. At least Greek yields are above zero, right? Not exactly. But those are just bills. And frankly, in a negative policy rate environment, that makes sense. One of the big reasons that the ECB has been forced to delve into negative rates is because Unlike the experience in the U.S., when the ECB ran up against the end of its bond buying program, they didn't stop as a reflection of improved economic expectations. Rather, they just ran out of bonds to buy. Not an issue that we're going to be facing in the U.S., which to some extent does give me a degree of solace that if and when the Fed needs to become even more aggressive than dropping to the effective lower bound, there'll be plenty of bonds to buy for QE. Bring it back more near term. Obviously, the Fed meeting at the end of this month is going to be crucial for the forward path of policy. Right now, it's between 70 and 80% priced in, at least according to the futures market. Do you think it's safe to say October is a done deal yet? And what does that mean for December? If the Fed wanted to push back against the market's pricing in of another quarter point cut in October, that will need to happen in the very near term. I was looking at Powell's presentation in Denver as the key moment where he might question the wisdom of assuming that we're going to have another 25 basis points in October or even by the end of the year. In fact, we got the exact opposite to a large extent. Yeah, and Powell's explicit acknowledgement that they're going to return to balance sheet expansion, likely focused in the front end, also ties into another theme we've heard, that the Fed's new purchases... You mean on top of what they're already buying? Yes, exactly. QE. At least you didn't say QE. It's not QE. Thank you, you two. But that these new purchases could be viewed as a sort of placeholder for explicit rate cuts. What say you to that idea? I think it's a reasonable construct in order to have this sense of, well, the Fed wants the focus to be on the balance sheet, the return to asset growth, and they're going to do something with the repo injections via open market operations. Maybe you want to have the focus be on that outside of rate cuts. But again, the core driver of financial conditions and therefore financing's impact in the economy is the path of rate policy. The balance sheet details are details. So if we see in the underlying data and global economic trajectory that it calls for another rate cut, 
they'll go ahead and do both. I have no doubt in my mind they're capable of doing both. It's more like if it was a 50-50 decision about whether to go in October, maybe they use this to create some space and push the final cut of the year back to December. So fair to say we're looking for 25 basis points at the end of this month and then shifting to data dependence for December? It's increasingly looking like that will be the more obvious outcome. My underlying concern is that once we get past October, the Fed communicates the changes that they want to put in place, that the market simply looks at the last three meetings and three rate cuts and says, oh, well, they're going to go again in December. And so as we were concerned between the September and October meeting that that was the key period for the Fed to push back against what the market's been pricing in, that window will simply shift ahead and the Fed will have a key three or four weeks in November to recast policy expectations. And I would actually argue they tried to do exactly that. Before we got the ISM data for September, the futures market was pricing pretty much a 50-50 split between the chances of an October-December cut. That was until we saw the ISM manufacturing and non-manufacturing print, as well as ADP and NFP, which by definition is data dependence. And now we're back to a 75% chance of an October ease. The bar for going past 75 cumulative was always higher. You know, 75 cumulative has this nice clean narrative. Oh, it's what we did in the 90s twice. And we were able to extend the cycle. To go past that, it's not necessarily crossing the Rubicon or anything. They could do 100 cumulative in a mid-cycle stabilization, but it does start to lead towards a more pessimistic line of thinking that, frankly, may be justified. One of the charts I've been pondering for the past week or so is conference board CEO confidence. If you look at that metric over the past 40 years, there's never been a time CEO confidence was this low that we weren't in a recession in the next couple quarters. Perhaps this time is different, but man, is that a chart that makes you want to pull back on your risk exposure a little bit. And let us not forget, it is less a domestic issue and more of a global concern at this point. Another thing I took away from my time on the road was the idea that some of the funding and repo issues that we saw play out recently were domestically far more of a collateral glut rather than a credit squeeze, but there's collateral outside of the U.S. system. And so the idea that we might have certain banks needing dollar funding at a moment where there is at least ostensibly a dollar shortage could become problematic. Obviously, emerging markets and developing economies jump out as a potential event risk in that context. With the collateral glut, at a high level, you know, if you were to build a perfect storm on this, two things would have to be the case. One, you'd need to see exploding deficits. So there's a lot of issuance going higher. Check. The second you'd need to see is the Fed not only not growing assets the way that we've seen, but say a multi-year process of draining reserves either passively via growth and non-reserve liabilities or more aggressively via declining the size of the balance sheet. Check. So we had both of these two confluence of factors coming together in rather dramatic fashion, but we're only half in that world nowadays. The Fed's returning to asset growth, and they've demonstrated a clean willingness to inject several hundred billion dollars in repos if and when the market needs it. That was not the case last month, so we are in a little bit of a different regime going forward, and one that for all intents and purposes we should expect to be in for quite some time you know, unless we go back to zero lower bound and then we really start talking about QE. So we're data dependent, 
dovish Fed watching for the potential for the balance sheet to be expanded even further beyond simply supplying the needed banking reserves. How can this end poorly? Well, potentially the reversal of decades of globalization and free trade via ever-escalating tariffs and political brinksmanship. Good news is Trump probably doesn't know how to play the fiddle. Nero was playing the liar, John. Five years of high school Latin. Nailed it. Five years? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will remain vulnerable to the back and forth on the trade front, as well as any progress on the Brexit side. We've been on board with this recent backup in yields and don't see a reason to challenge the move yet, if for no other reason than the seasonality during the fourth quarter of the year has tended to be a bit bearish for Treasuries. The re-steepening of the yield curve, while notable, hasn't really brought the market into any uncharted territories, particularly in the case of twos and tens. The three-month bill versus 10-year yield, on the other hand, has come out of inverted territory, which does beg the question, is this a sign that everything is back to normal in terms of reducing the probability of a recession in the near term, or is there something else afoot? Historically, an inverted yield curve has preceded the first rate cut. What makes this cycle somewhat different is the fact that the Fed cut 25 basis points and then the curve inverted. A bit counterintuitive, especially given the fact that this recent re-steepening has been bearish in character. Now, part of that is owing to progress on the trade front. Part of that is owing to some of the realities within the risk asset market. So we're reluctant to interpret this as a particularly positive sign for the prospects of a recession. However, the fact of the matter is that in terms of a market signal, the Fed certainly will be taking some solace from the recent price action. In terms of economic data, in the week ahead, we have retail sales, which in the context of an economy that is so beholden to consumption to drive growth, Wednesday will be a pivotal day, at least for domestic economic expectations. Taking a step back, however, it's been a long time since the domestic economy really set the tone for the treasury market. So the only risk that we see coming out of the September sales figures are going to be any risk toward the downside. A relatively strong consumer is largely priced in, and even with that backdrop, we still see the Fed content to continue cutting rates. The debate between whether or not the Fed is going to cut rates by another quarter point in October continues. We're erring on the side of assuming that they do go at this point, although any swift resolution on trade and or the extension of Brexit might ease the key uncertainties that the Fed has been focused on as driving their preemptive easing campaign. So we could envision a world in which the Fed chooses to forego an October rate cut if Washington and Beijing are able to cobble together a deal in the very near term. Still not our baseline expectation, although it does warrant a nod as a key risk. 
This week, we'll also see the release of the August tick data. Tick data hasn't been a driver in the Treasury market for a very long time. However, it will be interesting to see if there is a continued accumulation of treasuries by Japanese investors. This has been especially topical this summer because of reports of Japanese investors buying treasuries on an unhedged basis. Confirmation that that trend continues will be at least marginally supportive for the outlook for rates. In terms of targets that we have for the Treasury market, 2% 10-year yields are still on the radar. Certainly could see that occurring over the course of the next several weeks, especially if we have some more positive momentum out of Washington. We continue to favor the 2s, 10s re-steepening. But we'll acknowledge that the curve has itself in a bit of a range right now, and breaking sustainably through 16 basis points could prove challenging. Nonetheless, if we do have a breakout and 25 basis points to 10s becomes a reality, that's a go with trade, and we would expect that to continue at least until the curve gets to 30 basis points. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the verdict still out on whether or not Powell has been able to avoid a U.S. recession, we're heading off to jury duty. No, seriously. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. 
BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.